You're listening to the Leadership Jam Session Podcast, the place where you'll get to hear leaders at all levels of management share their practical solutions to the management challenge you face every day. So let's get ready to jam. I'm your host, Rob Fonte. Welcome back to the Leadership Jam Session. If you're listening for the first time, my name is Rob Fonte. I'm a leadership development consultant and coach with more than 20 years experience in leading teams. For more information about me or how you can subscribe to the show, please visit my website at leadershipjamsession.com. Now enough about me. Today's guest is a very special guest. I have with me Sean Tomasello, who has over 35 years in the pharma and biotech industry, including spending several years early on in her career at Genentech, then moving on serving at an executive level position at Celgene for a number of years. She then went on and became the chief commercial officer at Pharmacyclics, which was eventually sold to AbbVie. She then went on and became the chief commercial officer at Kite Pharma, which was sold to Gilead. Sean currently sits on three public boards and one private board. Sean, welcome to the Jam Session. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. I am so looking forward to jamming with you. So are you ready to jam? I'm ready to jam. I'm excited to have you on today's show. And it's kind of ironic, the timing of it, because we are celebrating our one-year anniversary at the Leadership Jam Session podcast. A year ago, I launched the podcast. My very first guest was Kim Metcalf, who was the one that recruited me to come into training. That was back in 2010 and eventually put me on the path that I'm on today. And here I am, a year after launching this podcast, several thousand subscribers, three years in with my leadership company, and I am now launching my second year with a guest who also had a hand in that decision way back when. So you were Kim Metcalf's boss, correct? That's correct. And well, although we didn't, uh, I didn't directly report into you, obviously over the years we worked closely together on a number of different initiatives and projects, and you clearly had an impact on my development. I can't think of anybody else to launch my second year in a podcast other than having you on as a guest. So it's an honor and thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And while you didn't report directly into me, we work closely together on a lot of really important leadership and learning initiatives, along with the wonderful Kim Metcalf. (laughs) But you and I, we learned a lot together and uh, we learned a lot about each other along the road, all of which I'm grateful for. Yes, we certainly did. And so let's talk about the journey. I definitely want to talk about your journey. And your name consistently comes up in my travels, metaphorically speaking, because we're obviously not traveling these days, but uh, your name does come up. It's always associated with building a great culture. And as I reflect back, and I think about our time together spent during Celgene, it was a very special culture. For those of you who are listening and don't know Sean, take out a piece of paper, take some notes, because you're going to hear it right from the master, because Sean has a great track record of building highly engaged cultures. So Sean, the question is, What's the secret to your success in building highly engaged cultures? It's a tough question, but then it comes down to a real simple answer. You can go in all kinds of directions with this, but I really believe that the, the secret sauce for creating highly engaged cultures is to engage people's hearts and their minds. And I think when you do that and you do it in an authentic way, you end up with a highly engaged workforce And so, you know, what does that look like? That looks like an environment in which people like to get up in the morning and come to work. They're excited. And I'll just say that I'm excited, but sometimes also nervous about the tasks and the projects laying ahead. But they're working with people that they generally like, they want to spend time with. 
hence you get a more engaged workforce. They stay when things get tough. They're happy to stay and work on their project. They're happy to help their colleagues come to a positive conclusion on their challenges and or opportunities. It's just a place that people want to be. I think it's also really, really important to create a workforce that I'll just say it looks like America and has diversity. And I don't mean just male-female diversity. I mean diversity of cultures, of ethnic groups, of way of thinking. You get just a much better mix when you have different talents and strengths and people at the table. What are the challenges that you came up against in trying to create that positive and highly engaged culture? (laughs) You have to make believers out of the executive suite. You know, not everybody is uh, comfortable with what I would call the softer side of the work environment. By softer side, I don't mean like not holding people accountable or being nice to everybody. And But the softer side is people are people. We all want to feel appreciated. We all want to be recognized for our strengths. And we all want development on what we know are our weaknesses. I think when you do that and you tell people basically what you expect of them, and then in a positive way, you inspect what you expect. It's clear the direction that you're going in. It's clear what the expectations are. People have the tools with which to to meet the requirements and the expectations. Not only does it create a better work environment, but the data shows clearly that the higher the engagement is in your employee base, the better the P&L outcomes are for your organization as well. I will say that that has been the key to the resistance that I have encountered along the way of creating a highly engaged workforce. And that is before you decide to do, you know, the the engagement surveys with Gallup or or some of the other uh, companies that are out there in this space, You've got to convince your executive peers, and in my case, it was you know convincing one of my CEOs that although it was a different kind of effort we were getting ready to undertake with our employees, it would lead to better P&L results in the end. That's generally the key to the kingdom, and then you have to deliver the results, right? Right. Part of my success in having the resources and the autonomy to create this type of highly engaged environment is that the results are, are there time and time again. And you could say, well, what is it? Is it the chicken or the egg? Well, gosh, I don't know. I just know it's a winning combination. It has worked for me um, my entire career from the time I became a district slash division manager leading my first team until section 16 officer Mm -hmm. I know that I cannot be successful alone. None of us can. So to create a highly functioning team that's highly engaged, and gosh, when you do that, it's a heck of a lot of fun. It's a winning combination. And really the secret sauce is very simple. You've got to engage people's hearts and minds and do it with authenticity. There is a particular quote you just said that I selfishly plagiarize all the time with my clients, which is you need to inspect what you expect. And I know that in the environment we were in when we worked for you, it was the environment that you exactly described. And I think you're right. I think people do, unfortunately, perceive the the softer side, if you will, 
of the culture as too loose, not serious, but that's not the case at all. I mean, we had a lot of fun, but we worked hard, and but we wanted to. And I remember that anytime you came into my office and closed the door and sat down, I knew I had to dot my I's and cross my T's because whatever the expectation was, I knew you were going to inspect it. It's such a simple concept, but it has a lot of power and rarely does it get executed to that level. It's fundamental in my mind that if you get up in front of your team and you should get up in front of your team, every annual kickoff, no matter what cycle your company is on, and you put out the, the goals and the objectives for the year, and you tell them, this is our route to success. This is how we will be measured by the internal and external uh, stakeholders in our worlds. You've got to do check-ins. You've got to inspect what you expect, or nobody really believes that you ever expected it in the first place. True. And this is a skill I believe transcends life, not just work. If you think about your relationship with your family, your relationship with, I would say, clubs and um, friend groups. Mm -hmm. If you say you want something and you're going to do something and then you never follow up and you never check in and see where the progress is, people don't really believe that you ever wanted it in the first place. Well, and you know what? Yeah. So you brought up the, Gallup, the employee engagement service. We used Gallup. I remember when I was um, just moved into that, that management training role in 2010, like two weeks later, we were at the annual manager's meeting that you would host. I think at that time we were in a, a, a room that was probably maybe 30 managers, different levels. And we did the Gallup survey. You brought them in. You actually even brought in Marcus Buckingham to speak. How lucky were we right? Marcus Buckingham. Oh yeah. What a treat that was. <laughs> well, and, and so that, and that leads to the other thing that you really, and you spent a lot of significant investment in employee development, which I do want to talk about in a minute. But the Gallup survey was my, it was my first exposure to employee engagement scores. And over the years, I have learned there's always a correlation to employee engagement and the bottom line. There may be a delayed effect, but there's always over time a correlation. Over the years, you were adamant about doing employee engagement surveys. We switched gears at one time and we went to a different company and used, uh, and you were the first one out of the company globally to volunteer. And so we were part of the North America group. Our employee engagement surveys came back. We were in the top two percentile of the biotech pharma industry. Our engagement scores were so high, the company opened it up across all industries. And we still came up in like the top two percentile. And it was obvious to see how well we were doing. I know you talked about the chicken and the, and the egg, but I do believe the employee engagement drives results, hands down. Well, obviously, I'm a total believer. I also believe that if you get, I, I've seen this happen, that if you get employee engagement scores back, right, and let's say you're leading a group that you're not in the top 2%, even within your own peer group, within your company, uh, and you share that with your team, and you have honest, authentic conversations about what we could do differently, what should we keep doing, and what should we stop and start doing that would make our work environment uh, better, i.e. higher engagement. And then you actually put those agreements into place and you pull through on them. I guarantee you, your engagement scores are going to improve in ways that will surprise you. People want to be successful. 
they want to be a part of success. You know, when things come back less than what you wanted them to be, you have to be transparent about this stuff and say, hey, man, you know, we didn't do so good in this part. How can we as a group be better here? What works? What do we need to do? And I've always found that, you know, the engagement score is everybody, right? It's your, your entire team, your entire corporation. And no one person can make that better or worse. Well, I have seen people make it worse on their own, <laughs> but no one person can really make it better uh, alone. So it's got to be a team effort. And you know, if I, I've had conversations with leaders that went something like this. Wow, that engagement score is amazing. Tell me why you think it is so good. Those leaders almost always talk about their team and the strengths and the commitment of their team. And they, they get that it's a team. I've also had conversations with leaders that say, wow, you know, this surprised me a little bit. Did it surprise you? Why do you think the score is not as high as the rest of the organization? And I'm always very open with people about which department got what score and what the overall score is. So there are no secrets. Those leaders sometimes that have the lower scores, it may take them a little while to grasp the fact that it is a reflection of the entire team and that the team is going to rise or fall together on the engagement scores. But honestly, I've seen some real aha moments where leaders will say, well, I'm going to work with my team and hopefully the next time we do the engagement score, it will be more reflective of what we want to be. And most often it is. Well, and that's the other technique, the other path you took that I think helps drive this. And, and with, with the second engagement story that we did a few years later uh, that we introduced, one of the biggest driving factors of engagement was and I'm going to paraphrase it, my company invests in my personal development. It was one of the highest mm -hmm. scores. Mm -hmm. And there is a correlation to personal development and employee engagement, which you were very big on investing in people's development. And even in the example you just said, even if somebody had a low score uh, or a lower score, I do remember you taking an approach of providing them with the resources to help them get better. As a leader, that is one of the greatest honors is to help other people develop. You know, we spent a lot of time over the years in the companies that I was associated with and understanding our strengths. And in understanding your strengths, you inherently also understand what are not your strengths. Right. That's very directive on where to spend your time. I love seeing people realize their potential. So to be able to be part of that is a huge kick for me. And I think also an honor for people to trust you with those conversations and with that journey. If all of us just get a little bit better, myself included, then the company benefits greatly. The individuals benefit, the company, the community. I mean, it's just a real positive momentum forward. Well, and I think the one thing you just said there highlights something very important. Even when you said, if I get better myself... I do remember at the annual managers meeting that we had every year. So I've referenced the first year I went, there was, you know, we had like 30 managers over the years. I remember then, because I would facilitate uh, a lot of these uh, sessions at the managers meeting, four or five years later, now we're standing in a huge ballroom with like 150 managers and directors. And the one person dead center at the front table, center of the room was you, highly engaged in every session, and rest assured, 
that sent a message to everyone else because everyone else was just as highly engaged. So you did set the example for development. If I'm going to ask other people to really dig down and be honest and develop and make progress, first of all, I love that stuff. I really do. I have to tell you, I have been to a lot of those sessions and every single session that I have participated in, I have learned and had aha moments without fail. And we had different speakers, different uh, leaders, different moderators. And as you're having these discussions, all of us can reflect back on projects, discussions, relationships that went really well or didn't go so well. And I can remember so many times thinking, oh, based on what I heard someone else say, either from my team or from the stage, having an aha moment about why something went so well or why something went so wrong uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and thinking, oh gosh, if I had only done that, or if I had only thought about that, I think most of us are active learners and I certainly am. And I don't consider myself, even now I'm not done. I'm learning from people all the time. I can tell you, I, um, Certainly learned from you and goes back to what you were saying before about creating the environment where you can give people feedback, the right feedback. And I will say that the other key takeaway here is uh, you did create the environment where people could openly debate. It was an expectation, right? I mean, people really did look for ways where we could improve whatever the scenario was. But that also, mm-hmm. but that also transcended to giving feedback to individuals as well. And I do remember sitting in your office. I'm not even sure I ever shared this with you. I think I was one year in. Oh boy, do do I want to know this? <laughs> no, no, it's a good story. It's a good story. It's um, it, it did put me on a different path in terms of my personal development, where I would have to speak a lot with your and coordinate different initiatives with your direct reports, heads of the departments. And again, here I am coming in, never really having that experience of of coordinating and having those type of interactions at those levels. I remember sitting across from you, you're at your desk, and I was basically, I forget what the initiative was, and I was basically saying, well, I'm trying to get consensus. And then you just stopped, looked at me, and said, you know what? Um, Consensus is good at time, but in this case, you need to stop with the consensus. You've built a credibility, you need to start using it. You need to start having the confidence to just tell my direct reports what they should do. And I sat back and I was- Right, I remember I was like, what just happened here? I thought I was on the right path of trying to build consensus and you just took this to a whole different path. And I sat back and I was like, you know what? Uh, It took a little while to, to sink through, but I was like, you know, that was exactly what I needed to hear at that moment in time. It was a confidence thing that I had to get over and you gave me that push that I needed. Uh, well, I'm glad. And you are incredibly talented and committed to getting the input from stakeholders. And you always have been. But once you get all that input from the stakeholders, you have to make a decision, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody has to say, we're going right. If we get additional facts along the road to, to the right, then we course adjust. Just, just common sense. But you can lose momentum and eat up some time by not making a decision and starting to chart the course. And you got really good at that, by the way. But that was <laughs> that was a crossroad at some point. Uh, who knows how long I would have just been firing out there and lingering. And But again, it does go back to the development piece, having... And that's what leaders, good leaders do, right? It's what great leaders do. They, they have these type of conversations. But that's the environment we were in. 
in terms of helping people develop and grow, for sure. You know, my, my direct reports have affectionately referred to those conversations as, quote, table talk. Yes. And, uh, you know, when they would come in my office and I generally had that round table that you could like sit two or four people at. I remember it well. We would sit at, I'd say, let's sit at the table. And, and they, they started affectionately referring to it as, quote, table talk. <laughs> but if you really care about people and, you know, I honestly, I have people that I've worked with time and time again, company after company. I love them. I care about them. I want them to flourish and be the absolute best that they can ever be. And I really believe that if you truly care about people, you have tough conversations with them about whatever could trip them up or whatever could accelerate them. And then you get behind them and give them the tools and resources that they need. Speaking of that too, you know, you were a, a master chess player of moving people around with their careers. As I said, the culture was one of personal development, uh, whether it was in-role or career development. You were very good and involved, very involved and supportive of moving people to various different positions, even if they themselves didn't realize or maybe even didn't want to go in that position. But you knew it was for their betterment and it would make them a better leader down the road. You have to be artful about that sometimes because Many times, and, and you are one of those people, Kim Metcalf is, is one of those people, Jerry Derman is one of those people that I just saw great potential in. And there are certain subject matter topics in our business that if you don't touch them, if you're not responsible for them, if you haven't done them, it's hard to really go to your highest possible level. And when you're starting out in your career, and gosh, I've had this conversation with one of my mentors, which years ago, uh, and still is, Myrtle Potter. And I'll never forget the time she said to me and to other people in a leadership meeting, she said, when you're ripe, you rot. And when you're green, you're growing. And if you are comfortable in what you're doing, it's time for you to get uncomfortable in a new role so that you're rounding out your career experiences. And you know, when you see people with great potential, you want to try to help them make sure that they fill every possible gap so they never get tripped up in a conversation that goes something like this. Oh, yeah, but you never did. You never did global marketing or so you can't be the CEO or you never went to another country. So you can't lead a global organization or you didn't do market access, so you really can't be the president of North America. Do you see what I'm saying? So the people that I really thought had what it took and were open to the conversation, at least the conversation, I just felt a commitment to that. I can tell you it didn't always come with a thank you note right away because you know when people are comfortable and you're talking about making them uncomfortable, everybody reacts a little bit different. It went the full range of, oh, I love that idea. Yes, I'll do it To Yeah, but I don't ever want to be in that position. So I don't want to go do that job. You never know where your path is going to lead, right? It's hard to really predict. But I, I really wanted to give high potential people that insulation of once they got to that spot, there would be no holding them back. And I think that's the hard part too. Some individuals don't see it until months or, or years later. As you said, I mean, I was one of those people where you um, 
suggested I should move into a regional sales director role. It was a second line leadership role. And at the time I was like, I think moving into my fifth year of doing the management training. And I was like, uh, I'm good. I'm, I'm ready to, to rot. You know, I, I am, uh, you, you are great. <laughs> I, I'm good. I'm, I don't need to move or, you know, and yet, um, you know, and I remember standing in a hallway, it was probably like six months or a year after I was, I moved into that role. And I said, you know what? I get it now. I, and it was a role that I actually loved and, and grew into. I did it for three years. I didn't even, I didn't want to leave that role, but, um, I remember standing in the hallway and saying, you know what? You were right. It was a gap that I have. I didn't have that second line leadership experience. Uh, I really needed it if I was going to grow. Didn't know it at the time, but. None of us know what, uh, have a real appreciation for what we don't know. And so I had the benefit of being in some of those roles and understanding the differences and the learnings and the challenges. I also had the benefit of having some career regrets that held me back a little bit. I don't know. You know, I'm very, very happy with how my career played out and, and blessed beyond my wildest dreams. Don't get me wrong. But I wish that someone had said to me early in my career, girl, go to another country, run another country, and then come back. I would have had a much better understanding of global markets faster than I did. But it never happened. And you overcome things uh, with the right mentorship and the right sponsorship. And so I do want to go back to something you said before, because we kind of touched on it, but I do want to highlight it because I think it is another cr critical component uh, to building a highly engaged workforce, which is you talked about setting the expectations. And I do remember every manager's meeting, you would stand there and you would communicate the expectations, the vision, uh, and you made sure it was cascaded down. And again, people understood that that when expectations were set, it goes back to that, you need to inspect what you expect. I do remember when we purchased a company, another, a small oncology company, um, Abraxas, and we integrated, and you did, you put a lot of effort into the integration to make sure that people felt very welcomed. <clears throat> and once the integration was done, we were one company, and you had an expectation, and it was a mandate. Nobody is to refer or use the term legacy. You remember that? Mm -hmm. And everyone walked around the hallways saying, okay, you know, if somebody said the word legacy, they were like, oh, you're not supposed to use that word. You know, they're, so I'm just curious, uh, what led to that? Why was that so important to you? Integrating a company is so fraught with, with danger of both parties losing themselves. We were the recipient of some really amazingly talented people that came over with the Abraxas acquisition. And the truth of the matter is, I wanted them to feel appreciated and part of the team. We were going to depend on them for a great deal of our success as a company. And I also wanted the existing employees that had built Celgene to where it was to understand that they have to be absolutely engaged and equally committed to building the future because we were going to look different moving forward, right? We were basically transitioning from a hematology company to a hematology and solid tumor company. It was not going to be an easy road if we didn't do it as a unified corporation. It was out of respect for both concerns. You have a group of people uh, at Celgene that had, gosh, I mean, a lot of them, way more years than me, toiling away to make it 
the positive, or I'll just say it, for a long time, Celgene was a destination, a desired destination to go and work at. And I wanted it to stay that way. And so we needed to, A, bring on the talent from Abraxas, which they had plenty of, integrate them into the family and move forward. I will tell you that having the benefit of being part of a blended family really uh, gave me what I would call a deep emotional understanding for how important it was for everyone to feel a part of one versus having two separate cultures. Well, I will share with you that some people may sit back and say, well, okay, that that's nice. Uh, what impact did it really make? And I will tell you that even just that alone, obviously there's a lot of other things that went into the integration to make sure people felt welcome, but even that alone made a huge impact by not being allowed to say that. I mean, after a year, I honestly forgot some of my coworkers who came from Abraxas, it felt like they were with us for years, that they didn't even come from another company. Honestly, I think I would have a hard time if you put the names <laughs> of all of the exceptional leaders, I would probably struggle with saying, oh yeah, they came from Abraxas. I'd have a hard time doing that too. And when they found out, even when when they knew that those certain steps and expectations were set, I mean, that goes back to winning the hearts and minds, right? It, It sends a powerful message. I remember having a training session for the managers that came over from the other company and, um, you came in, as you always did with all management training courses, you would take time, talk to the, uh, the, the managers in, in, the, in the session. Uh, as you did with this group, you talked about the culture and, and a lot of things that we're talking about now. And you walked out and they all looked at me. This was like halfway through the week. So we're at the halfway point. And they were just starting to come out of their shells a little bit. And you walked out and they all looked at me and are like, really? Is this how the culture really is here? I'm like, yeah. There's no, there's no boogeyman or boogeywoman coming out of the club. I mean, this is it. This is true. And you can just feel like the pressure just kind of leave the room for them. Uh, again, it goes back to caring about the employees, regardless what company they're coming from. Well, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to have a hand in the leadership teams and the development of the company and, you know, enjoying the success as well. One more question for you, because... I mean, you look back on your your journey uh, and what a tremendous career you've had, but I want you to go back to the very first team when you first became a manager and the first team you took over. What do you wish you knew then that you know now? I'll answer it two ways. I'll talk about what I struggled with the most as a new manager, and then I'll tell you what I would have done different. How's that? Will that work? That works. (laughs) Okay. So I took over um, my very first team was a team that consisted of people that were my peers and also hiring some new folks onto the team. So it was a mix. And I struggled as a new manager with the realization that not everybody was going to like me because I was really working hard for these folks, right? In my mind, some of them just flat out didn't like me. And I remember saying to my husband, I can't believe so-and-so said such and such. I don't think they like me at all. I had the benefit of of Richard being a very seasoned executive, managing people way longer than I had at that point in time. And he said to me, Sean, not everybody's going to like you. You're not going to be everybody's cup of tea. The thing you must strive for most is that even if they don't like you, they respect you 
and they trust you to make the right decisions. And boy, was he right about that. Now, I won't say that I flipped a switch that night and everything was great, but I did struggle with that a little bit in the beginning. Now, I will tell you that I got over it. And and as you go through your executive journey, there are lots of decisions that you're going to make that some people are going to like and some people are not going to like. You just have to do the very best you can to make the right decision with respect. And then if I could go back to thinking about how I built that team over time, the truth is I built it in my own image. So this idea of having a diversity of strengths on your team so that the team is much stronger overall. Uh, I didn't know anything at that point in my career about strengths and, you know, the first break all all the rules book with Marcus Buckingham. And that came later in my management career and discovering your strengths and making sure that you surround yourself with people that are really good at things that you really are not good at and respecting their, their differences and I, I was a sales leader and I was going to go out and get the best sales people I could find. And if they all thought the same, well, so be it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I learned over time that, that a diverse a team with different strengths is a much stronger team. And clearly, I mean, you can see it just even what we talked about, creating that environment of getting different views, having that open dialogue, debating. Uh, and that comes from having people with diverse thinking. I mean, I reflect back, and there were some some great debates that took place, but it, people really enjoyed it. They felt like they can at least contribute by sharing different perspectives. Yeah, I had a really great region director that was very, very wise about people and teams, and her name um, is Dot Bickford. And boy, did she teach me a lot fast. And really all of it I would send her a thank you note for. Uh, she was a, a very insightful leader, and I was lucky to have her as my, you know, in my first management position. Well, I know that as we wrap up here, I mean, let, let's kind of review just some of the things that we've talked about in building a highly engaged culture. Again, we talked about career development, and and even in that example, making the decisions to to move people into even sometimes positions they don't even realize that you know, they themselves should be going into. The personal development, career development is a key marker in driving engagement. And I love what you said before, too, about surrounding yourself with very diverse thinking. And as I look back, there was a lot of um, people with some very diverse thinking, and it worked very well. (laughs) At times, you would sit back and say, wow, this is a very highly dysfunctional conversation, but it works. We got to where we needed to get to. Uh Yeah, it's not always comfortable, but if it has positive intent, it leads to the right place. Right. Well, and that's the key, right? It's it's making the decisions with the with the people in mind. And again, the expectation piece is is a critical factor and and making sure you're holding people accountable to it. I mean, let's be honest, the Q twelve, the Gallup score, and I think we failed to mention this, one of the questions that drives engagement is, do I know what is expected of me? It's as simple Uh as that. And, and that was a key part to the culture that you created, but in a positive way too. Yeah, exactly. The journey has been amazing and the, the outcomes and the results were, were in alignment with the journey and we did it together. The journey was great. All right, Sean. Well, unfortunately we're out of time, but 
it has been an absolute. Oh my gosh, that flew by. It flew by. <laughs> I know. I mean, we can sit here and and I would love to keep yeah. going. But I I thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of your wisdom. It was uh, again, it was an honor and a privilege working uh, under you and and experience that culture. Uh, and I really do appreciate you coming on and sharing with with my listeners. Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure. Thanks for thinking of me. Thanks so much for listening in today. If you're interested in learning more about the show or how we can assist you through my leadership consulting company, then please visit my website at leadershipjamsession.com. 